what we were discussing last week is the concept of what a Benini is. So in the beginning of the, the first chapter of Tanya, we described the, the vow that a soul makes before it comes into the world. The world. Be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. And even if the whole world tells you that you're a tzaddik, be in your own eyes like a rasha. So what we've defined is a tzaddik, we've defined a rasha. So now we're starting to understand that be a tzaddik, which is strive towards shifting and, and transforming your internal world, but if you're not able to completely do that, then at least don't be a Russia, which is living from instinctive fragmentation without any form of regulation or choice. We spoke about the fact that the Benini is the one who chooses. The Benini is the one who is Russia in the sense that their inner world is still chaotic and they still have triggers and they still don't see everything through unity consciousness. They don't see divine energy within everything. They don't see the truth of everything. They still see the superficial of things and they still get stuck in superficial thought processes. But they always choose right action and they always recognize that that's what's going on mm. and that they also have a divine perspective that's available to them. So it says that the Benini is judged by both sides. They see the divine perspective. They see the instinctive survival um, perspective and they're in a position where they can choose. So the first part of the vow is be a tzaddik, and don't be a Russia. So he originally said that's repetitive. If you're a tzaddik, you're obviously not a Russia. But what he's saying is that it means benini, as in like if you're not able to be a tzaddik, at least don't be a Russia. As in at least work towards consciousness, at least work towards being able to be aware enough to make choices in your life, not to live in an instinctive state. And then the next part, which is, and even if the whole world tells you that you're a tzaddik, be in your own eyes, karasha, like a Russia. So what is he saying here that basically how would a person know if they are a tzaddik or not? This is the question. In the beginning, we say, Rabbah said, for example, I am a Benini. Now, the thing about the Benini is inconsistent in their spiritual, in their inner world. Their inner world is inconsistent. So what does that mean? It means that they can be in a state of meditation. They can be in a state of prayer. They can be in a state of feelings of deep connection, inspiration. And in that moment, they have absolute clarity, unity, consciousness. But then what happens is, is that when they leave that state and they go back into their lives, then all of the internal chaos comes right back. But in that moment, when they're very, when they're focused in their meditation and in whatever they're doing, whether they're concentrating on learning something that's inspiring them or they're deep in prayer, in that moment, then animal soul, their instinctive survival mechanism is sleeping. So they just truly feel inspired and they truly feel connected. And so... What if a Benini, what if somebody lived in that state all of the time? They constantly spent their days learning like Rabbah did and meditating and praying. So how would they know if they've actually transformed their triggers? They actually haven't put themselves into a position where they're triggerable, right? So this is what he says, is that even if the whole world tells you that you're a tzaddik, because your external actions are always right action, and even if your inner world feels completely focused and your animal soul feels like it's sleeping the entire time. You don't know if it's transformed or it's just sleeping because you're not putting yourself in an environment or in a situation that you could be triggered. And so this is where he says that be in your own eyes, Russia, as in internally like a Russia in the sense that you can still be triggered by stuff. Don't be so assured that I've dealt with all my stuff. I could put myself now in any circumstance, in any environment. And I'm going to be absolutely fine because how do you know? Keep working and keep growing and keep studying and, 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 and meditating on divine perspectives because this is what, this is what the Alter Rebbe says is the way, that the way a person is able to become a Benini is through training the mind. So 
like we've discussed from the beginning, let's just break this down. The animal soul consciousness, the instinctive consciousness is, is the survival instinct of how we perceive the world just from very an instinctive place of separateness. Like I need your approval in order to feel like I belong, in order to feel safe in the world. And then everything that's superficial becomes extremely important, right? I don't see anything deeper than like the superficial and your reactions to me and, you know, what, 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 how I'm thought of and all of these things. That's what's important to me. Divine soul consciousness comes along and says, actually, relationship with God is what is most important, right? Because God is everything and God is one unified field. And everything that exists and all life force energy and all information and, and every plant and every tree and every animal and every inanimate object has a soul. And that soul is one with God and so are you. And you're really just a divine being that's being projected into a body and that you are walking on the face of this earth, that you have a mission, you have a purpose, you have meaning for being here to bring light into that place and to start perceiving ourselves from that perspective and that every single thing that happens is hashgacha pratis and we're being guided exactly to that place at exactly that time in order to bring light to that place. And then when we start to see and perceive the world from that, from that angle, we start to realize that nothing is as it seems on superficial glance. And there's something deeper going on. And if I miss the bus, it's not that I just miss the bus and that I'm, you know, a stupid idiot for being late all the time. Mm -hmm. There's something going on. There's an opportunity for growth here for me. There's an opportunity for me to learn something. There's a reason why I missed that bus. And the the process of, of becoming introspective and asking myself, how do I connect here? How do I connect here? You know, whatever the situation is. And so... The, the, the more that we understand the greatness of Hashem, the unity of Hashem, the oneness of Hashem, how Hashem orchestrates everything for us, the more choice we have. This is what he, say, he says here. The more Abenini spends time every single day focusing their attention on and connecting with these ideas, these concepts, thinking about Hashem, the more they are able to have choice when they're in triggered situations. So when we say a person's in a triggered situation, we are talking about that the Bainini is someone who shows up to a triggered situation, is aware of the trigger and also aware of a different perspective and has the capacity or the das and the self-awareness to make a choice about how I'm going to respond to this. Am I going to do right action? Or am I going to do the safe and instinctive thing? So, for example, somebody confronts you on something that you did wrong. A person in a position of Bainini would recognize that my instinctive survival mode wants to defend myself or, or lie, perhaps. My divine soul says that actually this is an opportunity to, to show up and be accountable. Like, yeah, I did wrong and I'm sorry. And I get to choose. What am I going to do? I have that moment where I can think about it. And then... And then the thing about the Bainini is that it says that they're judged on both sides and God comes as the third judge. You know, if a person's in a court of law and you have two people and each is saying guilty, innocent, you need a third judge to arbitrate between. And God comes as the third judge because when we're in a clear state of mind and we really think it through and we just think, I could lie or I could just show up and say, yeah, I did, I did wrong and I'm sorry. When you actually acknowledge and you're aware of those two options, we're going to choose right action. Most of the time we recognize, yeah, that's more important to me. Is it like a good thing if you, sh if you think to yourself, not about God, you're just thinking, what's going to serve me better? 
doesn't make a difference if you're doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. As in, I'm doing it just because, oh, I don't want it to come back and bite me, or I'm doing it because, like, there's a God that runs the world, and this is a situation I'm supposed to be in. So as the question that you're asking, if my intention is not necessarily connected with God. with connection with God and with, like, the divine reality, it's more just about doing right action to save face. Yeah. Does is that the is that same as is that is, like is, is, is that is that coming from a place of abandoning? It's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's definitely coming from a place of a person having das, and like we've said earlier in the class, that actually self awareness and connection with self is a springboard to spiritual awareness to spiritual connection. The question is, how do we define spiritual connection? I think that the definition of spiritual connection that we are going for here in this class is the awareness of Hashem, the relationship with Hashem, the, the fact that everything that we interact with in the world is a conversation, ongoing conversation with Hashem, an ongoing communication, every experience that we have and every interaction that we have and an opportunity for growth consistently and rejigging of like my value system of what's more important to me in this world here. Now, of course, the animal self-consciousness of a person is hardwired for survival. And part of survival is saving face. Part of survival is not doing something stupid that's going to bite you as you come along. And there's different levels for survival. There's like the instinctive, for example, when we're very young, like someone does something wrong to you, you hit, you bite, you kick, you punch, right? That's the very basic survival instinct. As we grow up and we mature, we realize that actually if we kick and we punch, we get into trouble for that because that's not such a great survival instinct. Maybe if I grab the toy and run away and hide it, I'll probably get something better out of it. It's not necessarily better, but they, they've learned to be smart or not to kick and punch in front of the adults. I've learned to do something else. Or, and as we grow up, we reason with ourselves as how best to survive. So survival instincts can be very refined and very, very smart and they can look very right. There's a lot of survival to do with saving face and looking right in front of people. The question is, though, is this an interaction with God from my perspective? Where is God in this picture? Am I doing this for self-righteousness reasons or am I doing this for God? Now, not that it's a wrong thing to do for self-righteousness reasons, but it hasn't advanced our spiritual process. It hasn't taken us or opened up doors to us, like beyond our instinctive psyche still. We're still living in animal self-consciousness. Benini does live in animal self-consciousness as well as divine self-consciousness, and yet he chooses right action. So it could be a person who is choosing right action because their animal soul's telling them to choose right action. Later on, we're going to talk about how this is, sometimes that is the case. A person is born with a nature, an animal soul nature that wants to do right action all of the time. For example, a person who likes to learn, who enjoys sitting and learning all day. Certain people just have a very quiet, introverted, studious nature. And then the question is, have they done any inner work? Or is this just their nature? They just like to be the goody-goody. They just like to do the right thing. They like to make sure everyone's happy around them. And so they're just doing what they're doing, right? So later on, we're going to talk about what that means as far as their, their inner world and the spiritual work that they've done. And the ter terminology the Alter Rebbe uses is the one who is serving God and the one who's serving God not, the one who's not serving God, though they may still be doing right action. The question is what's happening with their inner process, their inner service, their inner growth. To constantly do right action is, 
is a very high level to get get to regardless of um, whether you um, are doing it from animal soul consciousness or divine soul consciousness. But still, there is always an opportunity for growth. Now, the Alter Rebbe says the Bainini has never sinned, nor will he ever sin in his entire life. And when you hear that, you say, all right, so that means that we're all ruled out. Like we're all in the level of, of incomplete Russia and like that's where we'll stay. But then later on, he says that any person at any moment and any hour can be a Bainini. So then you're like, what? But you just said they never sinned and nobody is in that category. Like everybody has sinned at some point, if not in their youth, there have been. So he explains that basically when a person does Teshuvah, the process of Teshuvah is one of retroactive healing, which means that it's as if I never did this thing in the first place. It completely transforms. It's as if it never happened. So you can truly say a person in any moment can truly move into the level of a Bainini and truly say, I have never sinned. Why? Because of Teshuvah. So when a person's in the state of being a Russia, which is the, the guilt-ridden kind of apathetic almost place of of not being so conscious more living from instinct it's like whatever i'm just doing what i need to do to survive i'm not really thinking about it much i'm not really thinking about god my relationship with god i'm i'm just getting by and a person can maybe do wrong action without thinking without knowing it but then one time they might think just let's say i'm just sitting and like talking about people because like whatever everyone's sitting around and talking and i want to feel like i belong you know and then one time i think what am i doing why am why am i why am i doing that what does this action give me? Do I want to be doing this? Is this who I want to be? And to recognize actually that maybe I don't actually want to be that person who sits around and talks about other people. And why? Because maybe I, I'm, I feel like there's something deeper and more valuable and more important in the world than that. And to notice how much remorse or regret I feel for all the people that I have. Or sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes someone else is talking about us and then we like realize, wow, that's really painful. I don't want to do that to other people. <laughs> like sometimes whatever it is we get woken up to this awareness that that there's something i don't want to be doing then we're open the process of teshuva the process of teshuva is really just showing god showing up and saying god this is my experience i i care i don't want to be doing this help me and if i don't care say god i care that i don't care right that is i want to feel something i want to feel something i care that i don't feel anything that's a teshuva and not caring so wherever you are, to shiver is the process of getting in touch with the truth of my experience and opening up the heart to express the reality of my feelings towards this thing. As soon as I do that, as soon as a person does that, they then move from a state of being Russia to being Bainini. I kind of feel like the, the Bainini experience, the fears are just quieted, like you're able to just think in that clear way without the... Um, defense mechanisms mm. I would say that it's a bit like there's a process where I'm able to think clearly and recognize my fears and recognize is this helpful for me for example you're feeling a lot of anxiety because of something let's say you feel like you did something wrong so you're feeling guilty and anxious about it let's say you haven't acted yet so a Benini has is, is got this moment of ability to have introspection before they act. So let's say, for example, you've done something wrong and you're feeling guilty and, and anxious about it. You have this option of, okay, so why am I feeling guilty and anxious? Okay, I, you, it can go through a dialogue in your head because I did wrong action. Okay, how is this feeling of guilt and anxiety actually helping me 
to to move forward from this and let's say you you experience a, a voice inside of you that says because it shows i care you ask yourself the question does it really show that you care how else can you show that you care that's actually productive right say okay so i can think about if i actually did something wrong i can be accountable let's say i did something and maybe i need to apologize maybe i need to you know whatever it is i need to do okay so when am i going to do that okay i'm going to do that here okay fine that's that process, a lot of times the guilt and anxiety is just like, feels like spaghetti, like a washing machine that's moving around inside of us and it clouds our judgment and ability to think. So a Bainini is somebody, for example, who has the position or the ability to be able to dissect it to the point where they have a choice. Okay, how do I want to respond to this? Bainini is choosing, how do I want to respond to this? And the the Alter Rebbe asks, how is a person able to get to a point where they're able to choose right action? And he says a lot of it, like we said, going back to this point, has to do with the fact that they, on a regular basis, train their minds and their bodies to experience certain truths. Later on in Tanya, he, he takes, for example, this word, Ein Soif. He says, I think it's in chapter 47, where he talks about this. What even does Ein Soif mean, or Ein Soif? Really think about Hashem for a second. What does infinity mean? Our insight means light without end. What does infinity mean? Can you just picture or imagine for a moment infinity? We don't have the capacity. We don't. But if you take 30 seconds to think about the word infinity and actually think about what it might mean, you get a little bit of a sense of how vast that might be and how much you might not know about it. It's just a little inkling of a sense. Whereas usually when we talk about the word infinity, we talk about God's infinity and move on to the next word, but really we're not experiencing anything of God. I can tell you a whole speech about God and use all the right words and not experience any sense of what I'm talking about. We can do that a lot, and we do. Have you, ever felt, have you ever felt connected to Hashem? I don't know what I'm connecting to. Mm. Right. Have you ever learned something that you really felt very deeply inspired by? Yeah, as in like when I learn new things. It's like it, it, it feels like my truth. Right. But okay, so this is... That, is that God, yeah, my truth? Yeah, yeah. The experience of feeling like something resonates extremely deeply with you or a deep sense of connection internally. This is accessing parts of yourself that are divine. God is synonymous with truth. So that sense of deep resonance is a sense of like, well, you're always connected to God. God is always present. He's in everything. But sometimes our conscious personality or a conscious perception of things is that i experience a separation but when you identify you become aware of something that resonates deeply with you as truth it's almost like the the inner and the outer experience and a meeting and like shaking hands that's what the experience is like when you recognize something and you say ah right that that touches me deeply and sometimes that can touch someone so deeply it moves them to tears or a very deep sense of connection or love that a person can feel that can be very moving and I think this is just the beginning of spiritual experience. And then those experiences can become deeper and more profound the more a person practices opening their heart and meditating on deep ideas that ring true to them and then experiencing them more. So what the, what the Alter Rebbe is teaching is that the Bainini spends time every day thinking about deep spiritual truths, like the greatness of God. Is it? Is it more body felt or head felt? 
Well, if you're really dasing something, it is body felt. That's the difference between Chachma and Bina. Das, to really know Hashem, means it needs to be body felt. Bina, to understand Hashem logically, is, is not as difficult not as Das. Das, the mitzvah, is for your data hayan, for you to know today, which means to experience and feel in this, in this moment, in this here and now, a felt sense of connection to God. And the way to do that is you go through, so you have to get go through Bina. Head. You gotta right? get out of your You gotta head. go out your head, but also it begins with your head. What that means is that you have to first have some information. You first have to have some information that you're going to spend time focusing or contemplating. So for example, you might, let's say, have a child that you know you love and be very busy with life and know you love your child. But then one day you stop and you look, take a picture of that child and you look at that child and you look into the child's eyes and you really begin to feel how much you love that child in the picture. This is called dasing your knowledge that you, I know I love my child. But how many times in the day do we interact with our child and not feel the love we have for the child? So in the morning, getting busy, getting the kid ready for school and sending them off. And did you actually sit and feel what you feel for that child? You know you love the child, right? But did you allow yourself to have the experience of love for the child? That takes time. It takes slowing down. It takes being present with and focusing on the child to the point where you actually realize, I love this kid. That's dousing your love for the child. It's the same thing with God. It's just slowing down enough to sit with an idea or a piece of information or an understanding about God to the point where you can actually awaken within you a love and an awe of God. And the Alter Rebbe says by thinking about spending time every day, whether it's five, ten minutes or half an hour, an hour, depending on whatever a person can do, wherever space is, is relative, truth is relative to where a person is, what the level of consciousness they're at, to take an idea of an awareness of God and to focus our attention on it to the point where we can actually awaken within ourselves a feeling of love and awe of God. And when we do that once a day, then any time that we're in a, in a position where we're struggling, we're struggling with knowing what's my right action here to just, do, do I do what's, what's easy? Do I, do I tell that lie or do I own up and say, I'm so sorry, you're right. This is what I did. Because, you know, that would be right action in this situation. Not necessarily. I mean, everything is complicated as far as what right action is at any given moment because halacha is very much dependent on the circumstance and the person. Like we were saying in a past class, is it wrong to kill someone? Is it wrong to tell a lie? It's the same thing. You, but I'm saying like, the, it's all relative. So I, I'm using this as a very rough example. But in any given situation, if you know what right action is here and you know that there's an easier way out, okay? So... In that moment, if I remember the experience I had this morning of feeling love towards Hashem and awe of Hashem, and I focus on recognizing that my relationship with Hashem is more valuable and important to me than any superficial approval that I might get in the moment, because I might get a superficial approval in this moment, but a minute later that person might be going speaking about me behind my back. There's so many things that are not in my control, so many things that are just not... So then that's doing it not for godly reason. That's because I would want it to be done to myself or I want to I wanna look like I'm doing the right action or... Right, but to get the person to get to a point where they recognise what is most valuable for me in the world, we have to go through a lot of phases in our thought process. I have to contemplate this. What is most valuable for me in the world? Let's say I say other people's approval of me. 
then I need to ask the question, well, what even is that? Yeah. Is it even possible for a person? How many people do I want to approve of me? Every single person in the world? Is that even possible? How much is enough? And the more you start questioning that, the more you break down the belief system that this is important and valuable to you. You have people who are not religious, who don't even consider themselves to be Jewish. Someone comes along and says, convert or I'm going to kill you. Mostly, history has shown us that people will give up their life rather than convert. And it makes no sense. They may know nothing about God, nothing at all. So what is that mechanism? And he describes it later on in Tanya as that when a person is faced with their own mortality, Chachma kicks in. A lot of the times the Chachma aspect of our soul is sleeping. It's like shut down a little bit. The Chachma is the open, expansive space. It's almost like a window that is open to infinity. It's like that space of open wonderment, curiosity, where all of a sudden we have insights and genius comes to us and ideas come to us and it's a place without any preconceived notions and no stories. It's a really open space. And what it is, is it, it, it's, that, it's that place, that part of our soul that is not bound by logic and by vessels and, and constrictions. Chachma is also connected to worlds above time and space. So in the space of Chachma, time and space doesn't run the same way that it runs in the other aspects of our soul. The only thing I can think of or way to describe it that is uh, very similar to our experience is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the flow state. you ever heard of the flow state? It's where musicians or creative people get into the state where they're like creating and they've lost awareness of time and space. They could spend hours without eating or sleeping, going straight. It's called the flow state. You can look it up. It's this place where a person's in, in such a deep, um, focused, almost like meditative state where they're creating, so they're in a very expanded space where they're receiving or downloading information. I think it was Julie Cameron who wrote in her book, The Artist Way, she said, all, all creativity is eavesdropping on God. So it's like you almost have your, your ear to the infinite well of all creativity and you're just downloading information. It's coming through you. It's not coming from you. And what happens is in that state is that you can very easily lose track of time and, and um, space. So it's somewhat, I would say, this is the only thing that I found that is similar and to what, how Chachma is described. Chachma is described as the state where it's the absolute essence of the person is revealed to the point where the, the, in the world of Chachma, there isn't, oh, I can do this now and then like later, I'll, I'll just convert now and later I'll do Teshuva. What happens is, is that in that moment, this part awakens within a person where they actually cannot, even if they tried to, to make any calculations as to what to do. Yeah. It's like when the essence is threatened, the, it, it just comes, this is the truth, this is who I am. I, and, and I can't possibly denounce it for one second. The true essence of the person awakens and they can't possibly denounce it for one second because it comes from that place, from that world that is timeless. Every moment lasts forever. So they move into this state where every moment lasts forever and therefore in this moment I cannot denounce who I am. This is who I am. And I will never, not even for a moment, want to be separated from that. So it's something that he describes happens in this moment of life and death. What matters to us most is what comes out when we're faced with our mortality. Yeah. What, what matters to us most. And what he said is that if a person thinks about what matters to you most, what would you want to spend that time doing, what matters to you most? And to start thinking about the essence of our Jewishness, how much that matters to us in a situation of mortality. So then a person can think, well, if I care about it so much when I'm faced with death, if I'm faced with something less than death, I can face... <laughs> 
doing right action, it's going to be hard for me. It's definitely going to be easier than death. I'm not being threatened with my mm-hmm. life right here. The threat is, is on a much lower level. So this is one of the things he says, he says a person can think about and to recognize that actually, if I really think about it deeply, wh- what do I truly care about? What really is the most meaningful thing for me in my life? And it's a question to really contemplate and think about on a deeper level. When you think about this question, you don't think that, oh, God is the most important thing to me. You, I think of my children. Right, so then you ask a little bit deeper, what is it about my children that's so valuable to me? I love them. What is it about them that you love? Is it their fingernails? Is it their shoes? Is it the personality? Is, the personality. It, is it the life force and warmth? And, and personality. I, so, I just love right, them. Right, exactly. So what you're saying is I love their soul, right? Okay. What is, because the soul is the personality, it's the warmth, the, la- the light behind the eyes, the emotional yeah. state, the thought process, everything about them. Their body is their physical container, which is also God. When, for example, your child does something that you don't like, let's say, I don't know, makes a mess. Do you love your child still? Yeah. Okay, but but is it... Harder or easier to love your child in that moment? It's harder. Yeah. But have you ever felt or had a thought like, oh, I hate this kid right now? Yeah. Like okay. Normal, yeah. So what is it when you say I hate this kid right now? Are you saying I hate the kid or I'm hating what the kid's doing? Like, what do you really mean? I really mean that I hate what the kid's doing. Yeah. And you hate how you feel in this interaction with this child. Like you're feeling like a failure as a mother or you're feeling like... You, you're not able to meet this child's need or, or they're experiencing pain and you're not able to hold the intensity of the pain or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. It's something along those lines. But a lot of times in that moment, we look at the superficial behavior and then it's hard for us to look a little deeper. But the truth is, is that we know that deep down, we love the kid no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter where they go, no matter, right? That, yeah. That's the bottom line. So... Basically, what he's saying, it's saying here is, is that when if you actually think about what is, what is the essence of the child? It's a soul. And what is a soul? What is, what is my child's soul? What is my soul? It's gone. It, exactly. So this is, this is a summary of what he says to meditate. And he says that make time every day to think about the true value of the things in the world around us. So that we come to value our relationship with Hashem above all else. For example, thinking about how short-lived the joy of material goods are and how in the end they all become worthless and how really the only thing that is worth investing in are things that are true and last forever, such as one's relationship with God or acts of goodness and kindness. And this extends to all relationships in general because all people are an expression of God in the world. So your relationship with another human being is part of your relationship with God. It's one and the same thing because Avas Hashem and Avas Israel is just two sides of is one coin. Is there anybody coin. that has an actual relationship with God? We all do in our own way. Not via children, not via anything else. Do I have an actual just relationship with God? So the way, the way that you develop your relationship with God is you start by talking to God. And you start by talking to God honestly. And that beginning of that conversation might be to say, God, I'm talking to you, but I feel like I'm talking to the walls. Yeah. Like, where have you been my whole life? I don't feel you. And then you can talk about if you care about it or not. You can say, actually, I don't even care to feel you. Or you can say, actually, I really do wish I could feel you. And whatever comes out, if you are present and honest and communicating with God, that is how you begin to open your heart and start to feel and connect and have a relationship with God. If you do that every single day for a couple of minutes, 
whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, but you spend a couple of minutes every day just having an open and honest conversation with God about whatever is in front of you, whatever you're experiencing, you will start to notice and experience your relationship with God starting to develop and shift. Now, the thing is, is that in our life or in our experience of life, slowly as we grow up, the things that we value shift and change. So when we're a young child, let's say two or three years old, the most important thing in the world is your lollipop. And if it falls on the floor, the grief that you feel is tremendous, right? Then as you maybe become six or seven years old, the most important thing in the world is if you're invited to your friend's birthday party and the grief that you feel if you were not picked is devastating. And then when you're 11 or 12 years old, maybe it's getting a high mark on a test. It shifts the entire time, right? And then as we get older, let's say we have kids and then it's the most important thing for us in the world as a kid to be healthy or to get to be happy and so on. And if we start to notice how everything in our life, if we focus on the superficial of it, then we lose, we lose the relationship. So if I'm focusing on the superficial, which is I need to get my child dressed so that they can get out of the house and get to rota on time. If I just constantly focusing on the superficial, I've lost contact with a child. I've lost my relationship with a child. It's just all about superficial. And then you come home and I need to eat supper and you need to go to bed. But why do I need my child to get to rota on time and go to school? Why do I need them to eat supper and go to bed? Ultimately, it's because I love them. And it's because I want the best for them. But how much time do I actually take to stop and feel, become aware of the love and express and reflect that back to them, right? That's the difference. So ultimately, we know we're living our lives because God is there and like, you know, doing, you know, mitzvahs because God is there, right? It's like the same thing, like my kid is there. Okay, my kid needs to go to school now. My kid needs to get dressed. I go shopping because I need to buy my kids clothes. But if we never stop and contemplate the value of the relationship and the love that is behind every single action that you do that you may not be aware of, you may not be aware or experiencing on a daily basis how much you love that kid, but you know in your head you do. But when we stop and we think about, why am I doing all of this? What is this for, Right? and you awaken in your heart the love for your child, then in that moment when you're sending them off to school, you have a moment where you will give them a hug and a kiss and actually feel it and mean it. Not just, oh, because I'm ticking something else off my list. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Why am I actually doing all of this? To tick it off my list and say, I did the mitzvahs today? Or because I love God, because I'm, this is part of my relationship with God. And this is meaning, This action is meaningful to me because it's part of my relationship with God. This action of getting my child dressed in the morning is meaningful to me because it's part of my relationship with my child. It's, it's the same, same scenario. And if I think about this child and if I think about what I value about the child and think about what's most important to me about this child, which is the light that shines behind this child's eyes, who this child is. And this child is, is, is a unique projection of God's light in this world. And what I'm really falling in love with is God himself when I look at this child. And that God isn't only this child, it's all of my children and all the things I love in the world. Then I start to appreciate and have a, in a sense, and a felt sense and awakening of love towards God. And that felt sense of love towards God gives me the capacity and the strength to make choices that I put my relationship with God above approval from superficial things in the world. So it's a process of training your mind to think of this taking that moment to actually dance a felt sense just like i would say even starting to do it with your child will give you the capacity to do it with god 
but it's a process of just really getting back to the question of what is important to me, what is valuable to me, why am I actually doing this? And what the Alter Rebbe says is that by spending time thinking about this, one slowly changes what one's heart desires and values, and one begins to experience the joy of closeness to God over and above anything else. And this is his best attempt towards upholding the promise to be a tzaddik. One may not have the capacity or the purpose to actually become a tzaddik, because it, not everybody is capable of actually transforming their entire inner chaos, and not it's not even the point. There's a very huge value in the process of engaging with struggle and overcoming it, but we're going to speak about this later on as we go along. But as a result of one's efforts, he says that perhaps the spirit from above will descend upon him and he will merit something of a spirit or ruach that is rooted in some tzaddik that will attach itself to him so that he may serve God with true joy as it is written, rejoice, O your tzaddikim in God, and then will in truth be fulfilled in him the vow, be a tzaddik. So what he explains is that a tzaddik actually experiences a lot of joy and pleasure in the service of Hashem because he doesn't have the, the conflicted consciousness. So everything he sees as unity consciousness and everything is a gift and an opportunity for love. So it's a wonderful experience. But we don't have that experience coming from like lower levels of consciousness. But he says that if a person spends time every single day try, focusing their attention on this, it can come to a point where maybe they will almost become like pregnant with the soul of a tzaddik so that they will have the experience of that. They'll be able to experience moments of relationship with God from a place of true pleasure and joy where they, rather than a place of, of internal struggle and conflict. And to wrap it up, he goes on to just clarify the, the vow. So we're going traveling back to now chapter one where he says, now we can understand the redundancy of the oath. Be righteous be a tzaddik, and do not be a rasha, which doesn't make sense at first glance, since he is warned, be righteous, there is no need to put him on oath again that he shall be a rasha. The answer is, then inasmuch as not everyone is privileged to become a tzaddik, nor has a person the full advantage of choice in this matter, to experience true delight in God, and to actually and truly feel repulsion towards anything that is superficial or fragmented, he is, he is consequently injured a second time, you shall, at any rate, not be a Russia. Here, he has the right of choice and freedom is extended to every single person to actually um, engage in the process of regulating the nervous system enough and, and, and focusing our attention enough on things that then give <coughs> us the capacity to make a choice about how we're going to respond to something at any given moment in our lives. So let's just summarize this a little bit. We're going back to understanding the opening dilemma of the promise that the soul makes before it was born. So in the words of the sages, even if the whole world tells you that you're a tzaddik, in your own eyes regard yourself as if you are a rasha. Not as actually a rasha, but one should consider himself to be a bainani and not accept the world's opinion, which would have him believe that the fragmentation in him has been, has been fully integrated, which is the category of the tzaddik. So this is because a person really has no way of knowing. Even if they don't hear the voices of the animal soul for a while, it could be because they are living in a situation which is void of triggers, or they could be living in a state of constant contemplation of God, where what brings a person to feel inner peace. However, there is no guarantee that it has gone. It may be subdued, but it has not been replaced, like a sleeping person who could awaken at any moment. And therefore, one should continue to work on creating experiences of love of God in one's heart and not sit back and assume it will be there if they don't work at it. 
So for this reason, Rava considered himself as though he was a Bainani. And though his mouth never ceased from studying, and his desire was in God's Torah day and night, with a passionate craving and a longing of a soul yearning for God, with overwhelming love, it was still possible that it was because that's what he was engaging in at the time, and if he would have stopped, it would have all come back. Because yeah. children. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then he says, if the love a person feels for God comes and goes, can it be called true love? So the definition of truth is something that doesn't change and is enduring. So how could a love that comes and goes be considered true love? And then he goes on to say that truth is relative. Each person has a different true service according to what they are capable of. Regarding the rank of a tzaddik, love coming and going would not be called true service because a tzaddik is capable of consistency. Whereas in regards to a Benini, it is called true service because this is their personal best. And they always have the power to reawaken this love through meditation. So for truth is the attribute of Yaakov, who is called the middle bolt, which secures everything from end to end, from the highest gradation and degree to the end of all grades. And in each gradation and plane, it fixes its bolt through the most central point to Ferris, which is the point and quality of its attribute of truth. So it's a little bit like if you have a big building and you have like the central pillar or beam in the center of the building. And like down in the basement, you're going to see a version of the beam. It's going to look different than the first floor and the second floor and the third floor. Because whatever level of consciousness we are at, wherever we are in our growth process, it will look slightly different from our perspective. So this is wrapping up first 14 chapters. We've kind of come to an end of understanding this oath and what it means and we've defined what the soul is and we've defined what the tzaddik, the bainani, the rasha is we've defined what the possibilities of our spiritual work are 